Welcome to Decades From Home, a podcast about the weird and wonderful side of living in Germany. And all without saying, die Adler ist gelendet. I'm Nick Houghton, 40percentgerman.com, and I'm joined by my co-host Simon Maddox. How are you, Simon? I'm doing fine, mate. Doing absolutely fine. Not much to report. I went fish shopping today for the first time in my life. What, like in a proper a proper German fishmongers? No, I, I, I bought fish as pets. Oh, right. You weren't going to eat them. Or maybe you will. Who knows? <laughs> no, it's, this is not for no, food. No, like you bought fish. That's wild. <laughs> well, yeah, the place we rented came with a pond. And when they moved house, they took all their fish with them. But one got left behind. And so ever since we've been here, there's a fish that's been on its own. Oh. Yeah, it is It is quite sad to think about his little reality or her reality. We don't know. We called her Wanda. <laughs> of course um, you did. <laughs> I have to give my wife full credit. She called him. She called her. She called it Wonder. Yeah, it was like on our list of things to do. My mm-hmm. wife has holiday for the next two weeks, and so we decided to like try and set some goals so that we can feel like we've accomplished things throughout. And yeah, getting a couple of fish. So we have two new fish, uh, and we decided to call them maracuya and peaches. So. <laughs> are, they, are they Siamese fighting fish? What kind of fish did you get? It's twenty euros worth of fish. Uh, so I guess. That- <laughs> <laughs> By the pound. Well, I, I don't know how they do it because I, I did some research on this like pet shop, but it's it calls itself a zoo as well. I don't know if it's a chain or not. Mm. And we walked in and there's like a, a waterfall with massive koi. The smallest one was at least 50 centimeters long and there's one that looked like it was about 15 kilos. It was a monster. And then we found the other koi and like a normal, I say normal, a 30 centimeter koi it's like over 100 euros. Oh, yeah, they're really expensive. Koi really, fish. really expensive. Yeah. So a member of staff approached us and asked if we wanted help. And I was like, yeah, well, no, my wife took over this part of the conversation. I was like, we need advice. We've got a pond. We're renting. And he's like, oh, I'm going to go and get you the pond specialist. Uh, so he waited five minutes and the pond specialist turned up. Young guy, very, very nice. And yeah, he gave us a, a really good rundown of the requirements of our fish and advised us. And yeah, so we picked up a couple of fish at his recommendation. That's the thing in German shops. There's something that I've realised... And I realized that only, I guess only recently, I think we went into a, a, a DIY shop and there was a big sign saying, would you like an apprenticeship with this company? Mm-hmm. And I was like, an apprenticeship to like work in a DIY shop? That seems a bit extreme. But you realize like a lot of shop assistants, really well trained, <laughs> like they know mm-hmm. their stuff like way better than, or certainly when I did, when I worked in, in shops. I didn't know as much about the product. Well, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a classic joke from Alan Partridge where he calls up the local curries and asks for advice on a surround sound system for his MIDI hi-fi. It's yeah. one of my favourite scenes. And yeah, I think in the UK, if you went to a, an electronic shop and asked for advice, you wouldn't have a very high expectation. No. But yeah, here in Germany, yeah, you're absolutely right. There are very well-trained people. Yeah, they had a pond special. I know, that's what I'm talking about. I did not anticipate that. We went to buy, because it's exciting people do when they have kids, we had to buy a larger baby chair for the car probably what would have been my worst nightmare about five years ago spending a saturday morning buying a baby (laughs) chair but it wasn't that bad went in the shop and i was i was just thinking well how hard is it to buy a baby chair you go and you buy one and you leave and then i was confronted with about a thousand baby chairs and that's when you need help (laughs) and we got this guy and he just was he just knew everything about every chair and the manufacturing guidelines and all this stuff and he got us exactly the right thing and i was really really impressed big up the shop assistants in germany yeah We've complained a lot about customers yeah, yeah, yeah. over the last thirty-five hours. I'm just, yeah. I'm just saying they're not, they don't give a shit about you, but they do, they do know what they're talking about. So I guess the advice we found from this is go to specialist shops. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Buy some fish, get a baby chair, you'll have a lovely experience. As we let the good listeners of Decades from Home know in our most recent episode, this is another not quite so normal episode. Nick has completed another level in the German Mittelstandardness and is now a bloody homeowner. (laughs) Married, employed, child, homeowner. I think that's approaching a German royal flush. All that's needed now is a matching family of Jack Wolfskin jackets or an Audi, BMW slash Mercedes estate, or combi as they're called here. Hearty congrats on another levelling up, mate. Wonderful. I don't know if I've levelled up. Oh, God, if I get... Like, the deal is, and I think I've said this before, if I get a Jack Wolfskin jacket, you have to punch me in the face. Like, you have to drive all the way to Augsburg and punch me, like, square in my face. It's unacceptable. And I think if I get an Audi or a BMW or a Mercedes, then you get the kickers in the nuts. I think that's the deal. <laughs> like, I don't want either of those things. I think I've completed Germanness. I'm done. I don't want it anymore. I mean, yeah, you're, no, you're a long way from 40% German these days. It's what everyone keeps saying, but I don't see it. I don't see it. <laughs> so how are the new digs? 
Did you get to use any of the phrases that uh, the Twitter gave you when you asked? The responses I got to that question about what should I say to sound like I'm, I know what I'm talking about when I'm doing DIY or fixing up a house with Germans is that a lot of it was dialect. <laughs> so it's just like <laughs> random dialect. I was like looking at my phone and then saying stuff, and people they, they were looking at me going like, "Why is he? Why has he got a Saxon dialect? <laughs> like what's that all about?" <laughs> like, but yeah, it was. I mean, it's been fun. Well, you see, the problem with being just perpetually bad at German and generally lackadaisical with my vocabulary when you start spewing out like mad phrases about particularly expensive types of DIY equipment <laughs> everyone just thinks it's you've gone a bit insane so I, th- I threw a couple around my brother-in-law got a kick out of them because I know I know nothing about <laughs> DIY and I'm really sort of beholden uh, my, my brother-in-law and uh, some other people who have been helping out my father-in-law has been helping out so I'm just sort of heavy lifting I paint and I heavy lift and do what I'm told. I mean, your brother-in-law is a, a particularly impressive man. <laughs> he's an impressive like, specimen, there's, yes. There's very little that, he, that he's done that I'm not like, wow, <laughs> that's, that's really good. And he's massive and handsome as well. He's, he's a real, he's, he's smashing. It's life. very upsetting. <laughs> you don't want to stand next to him at a swimming pool when he whips off his top and he's got a rippling six-pack and you're like, oh. And he knows DIY. What is this guy all about? Yeah. He's great. Probably one of the funniest things that has been like the running joke throughout is whenever there's a, a shit job to do, he'll turn to me and goes, ah, you're the homeowner, so you get to do this job. And I'm like, is it a shit job? And he's like, they're all shit jobs. <laughs> <laughs> We've just been grafting away. We've got floor delivered today. We're going to put that in. Lots of painting, lots of decorating. I've knocked down a wall. That was quite fun. So just lots of little different things that I've never done before. I've learned all about how to dismantle light switches and plug sockets and all these different different sort of skills that I never thought I'd ever need. It's the first time with these skills that you're adding value. Doing something actually is worthwhile. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just time consuming, you know? I mean, more than anything, it's just we're in the middle of it now where everything's coming together, but it's still there's still lots of work to do. And you sort of look at the house and you're like, oh, you know what? It's like you've just moved as well. Like you've, we're surrounded by boxes. <laughs> we've not got the boxes in yet, but we've moved stuff around. We've not got no floors. There's still a lot of work to do, but we'll get there, I'm sure. Sadly, it does mean that we don't have all the time in the world to do like a full podcast. But we're doing something now, and damn it, damn exactly. it, listener, you should be happy with that. It does mean that we're going to have some. We're going to be sharing some of our favourite segments from previous episodes today. Thankfully, Simon's got something exciting he wants to share with us before we. Yeah, we we do have some some new material. It isn't all just greatest hits approach. I mean, with Nick being so undeniably busy laying floor and painting, we don't have time for a full on episode. But bear with us, and we will get things squared away. And in the coming weeks, when Nick's mm-hmm. finally finished painting then we'll we'll return as per normal and then as announced changes are afoot uh so yeah bear with yeah. us and hopefully good things are coming yeah yeah just gotta wait a couple of weeks and then some exciting stuff's gonna occur so we'll leave that floating out there for people <laughs> really excited about. yeah we're just not gonna tell anyone until it exactly. happens surprise them so launch day of this episode number 35 is august the 7th 2021 and that's number 35 Wow. pretty uh, pretty impressive and regular listeners will know what that means it's time for a german relevant event uh, <laughs> i say german relevant because this week's person was not born in germany and they are not german they're in fact born in the netherlands so this mm. is our first dutch nederlandische geburtstag born margarita gertrude zeller in 1876 this week's focus falls on matahari yeah. Famous as a dancer and courtesan whose name has become a synonym for the seductive female spy, she was shot by the French on charges of spying for Germany during World War One. The nature and extent of her espionage activities remain uncertain, and her guilt is widely contested. I'm really excited we're doing Marta Hari because she's, or she was, or she is. She's the archetype that people have when they think of femme fatale, spy... Mm-hmm. There's plenty of films, James Bond films especially, have played on this idea of the duplicitous, sexy spy who sort of betrays the good guy at the end. Mm-hmm. But actually, the, the the story of Mata Hari is much deeper and much more interesting than just this quite superficial assessment of her, her abilities. So yeah, I'm really excited that we're going to get to do a bit of a deep dive on Mata Hari's backstory. Yeah. When I was looking at the de- uh, of the birthdays, it was pretty an, a pretty underwhelming list, and suddenly I saw Mata Hari. And I'm like, yeah. I'm pretty sure uh, there's something very very interesting to have a look at there. Too right. 
To your right. So born in 1876 as the daughter of a prosperous hatter, in 1895 she married an officer of Scottish origin, Captain Rudolf MacLeod in the Dutch colonial army. And from 1897 to 1902, they lived in Java and Sumatra. The backstory up to this point for Mark Harvey's super interesting she was Simon says uh, was the daughter of a prosperous hatter her early life up until she moves to Paris in the, the start of the 20th century is is riddled with tragedy essentially a father left a mother for I think it was for a prostitute and then a mother died but because she was a father was very quite wealthy and quite successful she had a really good upbringing so she was she, she had all the the trappings and, and, and knowledge of a of a high-born woman of the time but mm-hmm. um a father actually went bankrupt in 1889 and that's when her parents divorced and he ran away with the, this this other woman and then her mother died and then she was sort of left left in the lurch essentially uh, and lived with her uncle for a time in the hague and then eventually she met uh, captain rudolph mcleod who was significantly older than she was uh, like her father mr rudolph mcleod was a bit of a bit of a prick as well by all accounts he wasn't exactly the nicest fella but yeah they moved to java and sumatra again tragedy befell her they had a housekeeper the housekeeper we had a relationship with a, a young man and there was some altercation between captain mcleod and this young man and it ended up with the housekeeper poisoning the children which was not an uncommon thing apparently in that in that region oh. at the time and she poisoned them by using human hair dipping the human hair in poison and putting it in the food oh, and they God. had a, a son and a daughter and i believe the son died and the daughter survived yes yeah, so, <laughs> so, uh, so early life was marked by tragedy and um, a series of rather rather shitty men yeah i think there were a, a huge amount of shitty men at this point men with power in the, the late 1800s this is this is sort of the story of Matahari, basically, is that, that she's surviving quite often on her own in an environment that's hyper hyper masculine, full on unrestrained patriarchy. Her husband, Captain McLeod, was an alcoholic and he, he beat her and yeah, he, was, he was just horrible. He, he had multiple affairs with different women. Yeah, he just seemed like a real, real arsehole. Sounds like it. But luckily, well, to a certain extent, she uh, she did escape these, this situation. And she spent a lot of time studying the local culture. This is the foreshadowing bit that would come in useful later in a future career that she would have when she uh, moved to Paris. I think what I said, then the couple returned to Europe and then she began to dance professionally in Paris in 1905 uh, under the name of Lady MacLeod. She moved to Paris after divorcing or splitting up with uh, Captain MacLeod. She moved to Paris with basically no money and she tried a few different jobs it's a good example of the kind of person Marta Hari was, or Margarita Zeller was, that she moves to Paris and she, she works for the circus as a horse rider. She was apparently a very good horse rider. But at some point, someone had suggested that she take up exotic dancing, and she did with quite fantastic success. She moves to Paris in, in 1903, and by 1905, the, the reports of her performances are that, that she's entrancing audiences in Paris and, and they're, they're fascinated by this this dancer. She used to for a period the name Lady MacLeod basically I think to piss off the, yeah. the, du- the Dutch MacLeod's family that she <laughs> left behind. It, I imagine. <laughs> but she starts as, a, as an exotic dancer and there was a lot of other exotic, famous exotic dancers working in Paris at the time but she created this backstory based on her experiences in the, the Dutch East Indies. And she created the story of being sort of a Hindu princess, mm-hmm. and people were entranced by her. She was she was very famous at the time, very successful. She did start start numerous affairs with different people and different men. The owner of the theatre that she was performing in, she she was had a relationship with with him, and and I think she prided herself on her ability to succeed and and, and thrive without the support of anybody else. She was doing it the way that she wanted to do it so more Mm. power to her i guess more power to her and yeah as nick said she soon changed the name to matahari which is a a malay expression for the sun meaning Mm. eye of the day yeah Uh, so quite a nice little flip there from lady Mm -hmm. mcleod to something very east indian and mystical and And exotic and exciting yeah yeah. so bringing back to the spying and the reason that matara is today so well known the facts regarding her espionage activities still remain pretty obscure tall extremely attractive superficially acquainted with east indian dancers and willing to appear virtually nude in public 
Marta Hari was an instant success in Paris and other large cities. Throughout her life, she had numerous lovers, many of them military officers. Yeah, that seems to be a mark of, of her experience. But again, military officers, it's a quite militarized situation with a lot of colonies, European colonies everywhere. There was a lot of people who worked in the military, so not really surprised. The facts regarding her espionage activities remain obscure. According to one account, in the spring of 1916, while she was living in The Hague, a German consular said to have offered to pay her for whatever information she could obtain on her next trip to France. After her arrest by the French, she acknowledged only that she had given some outdated information to a German intelligence officer. She actually had, she had a relationship with the head of the French Secret Service. Okay. As well, so she had like multiple relationships with all these different powerful people and the outbreak of the First World War, she was she was in Germany and she had all her assets frozen and was f expelled from the country and she was considered a French citizen. But at some point she was propositioned by a German officer or I think it was the, yeah, the German consul, as you said, she was propositioned to become a spy for, for Germany and she definitely took the money, but there's no evidence that she actually did any spying mm. at all. Apparently a lot of what she sent back was just like Parisian gossip. She, she apparently had this ability to tie men around a little finger and use that to her own advantage. And I think she saw this sucker and was like, well, if you're going to give us... I think I think he gave he gave her quite an extraordinary 20,000 French francs or something like that, like a wild amount of money. And she was probably just like, I fuck yeah, give me that money, you idiot. <laughs> I'm going back to France. As I said, she was involved with lots of different military types. She was involved with the, the head of the French Secret Service. And at the time the secret services of all major countries weren't there wasn't like the cia or anything there weren't complex systems that were in place but apparently she was given 20 french francs by this guy this german consul and several bottles of secret ink which is i guess invisible ink Ooh. which is i think it's lemon juice basically <laughs> so like there's a lot of talk about the secret ink and how how important it was but i know that secret ink uh, is also semen yeah, we do want to include this in the podcast because <laughs> okay. because apparently one of the things they tried was semen as an <laughs> option to to use as secret ink so they were basically just trying out every mad thing like the first world war is pretty weird period for like <laughs> let's just see if this works yeah. uh, oh it didn't oh well Let's try this then. Horses versus cannons. Let's yeah. go. <laughs> Horses versus cannons, yeah. Let's see if this works. Do you have a machine gun? Uh, it's not really clear how much spying she actually did or, or whether she really did pass on any secrets. According to statements that Matahari supposedly made, she had agreed to act as a French spy in German-occupied Belgium and did not bother to tell French intelligence of her prior arrangements with the Germans. She had intended to secure for the Allies the assistance of Ernest Augustus, Duke of Brunswick Luneburg in Germany, and heir to the Dukedom of Cumberland in the British Peerage. She was in Spain for a period. She did try and gain access to the Crown Prince of Germany and, and various other important people, but ultimately she was betrayed by the German Secret Service because she really wasn't given them any information, and, and I guess they just thought, screw this. We'll just dob her in. And, the, and she was arrested uh, by the French and uh, interrogated for a very, very long time. There's lots of lots of information. The interesting thing in this period was it's 1917, the period of 1917, was just after a rebellion and uprising of French soldiers on the on the Western Front. France was doing pretty poorly during this period in the, of the war. And uh, a new government took over, uh, headed by Clemenceau, and they decided basically what we're going to do is tie all our problems onto this, this woman. They're tied the hands of her lawyer so he couldn't really do anything about it they decided that she was she was going to be the scapegoat for all the failings of the of the french campaigns and so it came to pass that she was found guilty of espionage july 1917 uh, is when she was tried by a military court and as you say i mean the, the trial bordered on a farce her defense counsel an international lawyer called edouard clunet he really faced impossible odds he was denied permission to cross-examine the prosecution's witnesses or to examine his own witness directly. And a man called Bouchardon, who was Seller's interrogator, used the fact that Seller was a woman as evidence of her guilt, uh, going as far as saying, quote, without scruples, accustomed to making use of men, she is the type of woman who is born to be a spy, end quote. They decided that she was going to go down for all of, all of these failings and, 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 that, and so, so it came to pass and she was convicted punishment was to face a firing squad but yeah 12 french soldiers shot her on the 15th of october 1917 
just 41. There's eyewitness reports. What speaks volumes about the type of person Marguerite was, that she refused the blindfold and blew the firing squad, squad a kiss before they fired. Considering how many men who refuse a blindfold are considered heroes, I think, or very heroic, I think it's a very telling example of the type of person that she was, that she was, she, she met it head on, uh, didn't, didn't blink, and was even kind of taking the piss out of them, even up to the point where she was killed. She, she lived and died on her own terms, essentially, and she faced a lot of challenges throughout her life and a lot of tragedy throughout her life, and she died in a very tragic circumstances. But it's a shame that Marta Hari's legacy seems to be is this hypersexualized femme fatale character, when actually she's a much more interesting and exciting character and person when you read about her. Yeah, her story kicks the shit out of Casanova's, that's for sure. Fuck yeah, <laughs> fuck Casanova. Everyone everyone should be getting some of the Marta Hari action. That's what it's all about. Moving on to our first topic today. You've heard of urban foxes, but have you heard of urban wolves? Last month a video started doing the rounds on social media. Shot during the day, it showed a wolf running through the empty streets of Bremen. How would you feel, Simon, if you came across a wolf in the middle of your street? Well, I imagine I'd be a little bit perturbed. <laughs> and I think there's probably that split second was like, is that a really handsome dog or is that exactly, a wolf? Exactly, yeah. There are two movies, and I, I need movies to teach me these things. So I need to know, am I going to be like Liam Neeson in The Grey or am I going to be Kevin Costner in Dancing with Wolves? I'd like to think that I'd be Liam Neeson, but I'd probably end up just like putting on a really nice Apache rug and trying to be like mates with them. calm the beast. <laughs> I remember th- th- my biggest fear as a child was wolves. Why? Is this Little Red Riding Hood haunting you? No, I had, well, I had a storybook. I had one of those storybooks on tape. I think it was a Disney storybook and it was a picture of a wolf that was the most terrifying thing to five-year-old Nick. For okay. so long, wolves were the most terrifying things. Like werewolves, wolves, anything like that. There was a TV show that was that was on Channel 4 as a kid called Eerie Indiana. Oh, yeah, I remember. Yeah, There was an episode with werewolf in that that gave me nightmares. It was, yeah, it was a real thing. But So I've always had a little, not like a phobia, or like, I don't have a particular fear now. O- only a natural fear that you would have yeah. if you saw a wolf in the street. I, I can relate. I had a, a ladybird book. I think it was The Hound of the Baskervilles. And the illustration. Ooh. Ooh, on the yeah. front was terrifying. I didn't mm-hmm, call that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I empathise. It's not something you expect to see bombing down the street is is a no. wolf, and I think an urban fox is is a much a much easier thing to deal with than a big timber wolf blaring down towards you. You might think that the land of Grimm's fairy tales has more sense than to fraternise with wolves, but it turns out Little Red Riding Hood doesn't seem to have had the same influence it did in other countries. Although the exact numbers are hard to find, there are apparently between 1,300 and 1,800 wolves running around Germany. Well, mostly Brandenburg, but other states as well. After almost 100 years of exile, the wolves are coming back. Do you welcome the return of the wolf? I think that's an album name, right? That's an album name, Return of the Wolf. If it's not, it's going to be my my first album. (laughs) A Duran Duran making a comeback. Yeah, Uh, yeah. Do you welcome the Return of the Wolves? I mean, I love the notion of exile for the wolf. Uh, You, sir, are banished. That's a very (laughs) nice notion. The idea of wilderness is something that's, I think, really important. And it's something Mm -hmm. that I definitely fell in love with when we were living in in the US and we spent a lot of time in obviously the Pacific Northwest and and British Columbia in particular and that part of Canada is special it's incredibly special and for hundreds of years First Nation people have been fighting against the British Empire the Canadian government to protect these wildernesses and and keep Mm -hmm. these kinds of animals like wolves and bears and mountain lions and all these yeah dangerous animals but they all of course deserve their place in the world so i mean if i found out there were a hundred wolves being relocated to my my particular new neighborhood i'd probably be a little bit concerned about it but in principle i'm all for it i think yeah get the wolves back to the uk get the bears whatever if, if they lived here before I'm totally fine with them living here again. GPS them if we need to give people that particular (laughs) sense of security. But they were here before us, so 
why not? I know there's a lot of stories in the UK mm. about rewilding, and I think this is a big part of what's happening in Germany, is they've already reintroduced wild yeah. boar back into enclosures in certain areas of Germany. That I think they run wild, they're actually properly wild in Austria. Because mm-hmm. I think there was a story about, wasn't it like the, the Austrian PM, or there was an Austrian politician, or someone got chased yeah. by wild boars a few years ago? I recall one, one time years ago, we were driving over the Alps, and we saw a car, Uh, that had been it looked like it had been hit by a truck it was completely written off at the front end uh, and we stopped to find out what had happened and it had hit a boar and the amount of damage Mm -hmm. that had done to this vehicle obviously the animal unfortunately was killed as well but you realize that these are these are little tanks Mm. of animals and they are hugely dangerous and when a boar piglet when they're being born like the, the mothers especially are extremely territorial and if you happen to cross past them there's a good chance you'll get charged and yeah they can really do a lot of damage definitely one of the most dangerous animals in germany uh, yeah and a full-size boar is an absolute unit and, and they're, they're, they are very territorial and don't want to mess with one of those but i think mentally for a lot of people there's a difference between introducing wild boars back into the environment and introducing wolves i think wolves mm. have got a they have a very bad reputation as the uh, brothers grim will will tell you you know they're, they're a, a common part of european folklore about them the, the evil is usually a wolf but the idea of reintroducing them like you said you know i think it's a it's a lot of people have well i say a lot of people are very positive about it farmers and shepherds are certainly not pleased to see the surge in wolf numbers in 2009 there were only 40 farm animals killed by wolves in 2019 there were 2900 that's some increase the, the cost of farmers both financial and emotional can take its toll i think farming especially today is, does have a bit of a bad reputation and people have a sort of a misconnection with mm-hmm. it i mean farmers as an industry have been taken advantage of in the most disgraceful way and i mean suicide rates in that industry people losing their their family homes after multi-generations people having no choice but mm-hmm. to change careers for the good of their families i mean yeah I'm very happy I wasn't mm-hmm. born into a farming family because I think it is one of the hardest industries to work in. And only people that live in the countryside nearby farmers are really understanding and sympathetic. I think, yeah, politicians just assume they'll carry on doing the hard work, but they get gouged on prices. They're forced to do all sorts of things by companies. Obviously, what we're talking about here, mm-hmm. uh, farmers losing livestock to wolves, is very different from, let's say, the chicken industry in the U.S., where the farmers aren't even allowed to give their chickens fresh air or or things that they want to because of the the requirements from the manufacturers that provide them with those chickens. It's it's a Mm -hmm. a difficult industry. And yeah, you're absolutely right to mention the emotional toll. Finding one of your sheep, let's say, that's been taken out by a wolf has got to be a horrible thing to deal with. It must be very traumatic for everyone involved. So yeah, Mm -hmm. naturally I feel bad for them, yeah. There was a couple of videos in, in the article that I read that, had interviews with I think it was a farmer in in Hesse it might have been Brandenburg but the interview mm. and he, he could see how upset he got about the loss of his livestock when you when you're a shepherd especially there's there's a, there's a big connection between you and, and the flock and and you have mm. an emotional connection but also it's your it's your livelihood the whole job of a shepherd mm. is not to lose your sheep isn't it it's kind of the, the mo of a good shepherd is you don't lose them and to, to lose yeah. them in that way especially in a way that you can't control and i think that's i certainly do feel for them in that respect but compensation for animals lost to wolf attacks as well as funding for protective fencing are some measures that have been introduced to support farmers but it does seem that the wolf uh, farmer relations are unlikely to improve anytime soon. Every three to four years, the wolf population doubles, says Brandenburg's agricultural minister, Julia Kluckner. That is quite a, mm. a statistic. Obviously, it's increasing, and I think a lot of people see that as a positive, but there is a real downside to all of this. With the Greens riding high in the polls before the German national election in the autumn, it does feel that we are entering an era of conservation and the environment taking centre stage in the thoughts of voters. Of course, a lot of Green voters may be considered as lefty bleeding hearts while the often more conservative farmers take the brunt of the changes. The return of wolves to Germany sounds nice if you live on a top floor flat, perhaps a little more disconcerting if you live in an isolated house in the countryside of Brandenburg. Do you think conservationists especially those that live in cities would be so supportive of wolf reintroduction if it was their pets that were the target of the wolves? Naturally they would change their minds and this is definitely the issue we face where a lot of people have become more sort of urban thinking I'm certainly guilty of this. I, I grew up in the countryside. I was definitely a land eye, to use the, the German phrase for that. Um, but as I've grown up, as I went to uni and so on, I, I became more of a, a city person. Um, and yeah, I didn't think too often about the plight 
uh, of these people. So yeah, I think if mm. if someone was asked like, "Are you okay with your pet being attacked by a wolf?" like the clear answer is going to be no. <laughs> when I read the article, instinctively I thought, like, "Yeah, like wolves coming back rewilding, that's a great idea." But you sort of almost straight away okay. forget the realities because you don't have to be confronted by them. We're not going to see, except if we move to Bremen, perhaps, we're not going to see wolves knocking around the streets of, of most major cities. Um, so there have been anti-wolf protests from shepherds and farmers around Brandenburg. And since 2017, they've been hosting what they call the Nights of Wolf Watches, which are evenings and, and, and nights where different communities of farmers and hunters gather to protest the spread of the wolf, drawing attention to themselves with, with what they call warning shots. And they, they say that the government is not doing enough to protect livestock against wolf attacks. Mm. The article itself goes on to point out that even though there's compensation for loss of animals and there's money given to create fencing and so forth, Actually, there's a lot mm. of other work that has to be done. You have to actually ha- actively have yeah. people watching at night to make sure that the wolves don't break in. Because wolves are smart animals, right? They're not totally stupid, and, and they'll find ways around protective fencing or they'll find ways of getting what they want. I was thinking, though, is this, the, and with your American connection, is there not is there not some relationship perhaps with the this this increase in wolves and rewilding in 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 Germany and the, the growth of urban coyotes on the west coast of the US. I mean, is that something that you came across when you were living there? I mean, not not so much. For me, the, the animal that scared me the most when I was, was there was mountain lions. And there were quite a few uh, cases where people were stalked by mountain lions. And the footage of that is, is just terrifying. Um, and yeah. yeah, not long before we left, there was a couple of mountain bikers. One of them was killed by a mountain lion. Like pulled off his bike, and then the mountain lion chased the other guy. And I think it was five kilometers. He was basically like running from a mountain lion. And I mean, that's an animal that, in a fight, you have basically zero chance of escaping. I, I think I don't yeah. know if it's the narrative of Hollywood, but I think against a wolf solo wolf which of course is quite rare if you're going to be attacked by wolves it'll be a pack Mm -hmm. but i think on a psychological level you you fancy your chances a little bit more because it is in your head just a really big nasty labrador whereas a mountain lion Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. something that you have no connection to i mean my cats don't scare me at all but if they were like 50 (laughs) times larger with claws the size of my fist i wouldn't be messing with them whatsoever I see. Yeah, mountain lions was the thing that scared me. Whenever we were in the middle of nowhere on like a single trail, and I heard a noise in mm. the bushes, I always thought, "Holy shit, that's a mountain lion." Bears, of course, are an issue mm-hmm. as well. But I mean, the the stories you're told is if you're loud, bears will leave you alone. Um, so you walk around with like loud things banging on the back of your bag or saying, "Hey bear, hi bear, ho bear." things like that and they'll leave you alone but i saw yesterday uh, Mm -hmm. a woman in i think it was british columbia was attacked and killed by a black bear which is super rare like seeing bear feces Mm -hmm. on a track you've walked on is a really spine chilling moment um coyotes of course are are scary and they do take out pets but i think the amount of times they've attacked a human is Mm -hmm. very very low numbers yeah mountain lions do it a lot more i think oh i'd imagine so i was surprised when i was in san francisco like when there was signs up everywhere saying beware of urban coyotes and this is what you should do if you see one and there was a number you had to call and and they were tracking them and it was it was all rather surprising to, to, to us that this was even a problem it sounds like slang for like meth dealers or something <laughs> it's an urban coyote <laughs> It's 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 my second uh, my second album my difficult second album is Urban Coyotes. I, th- I think it's that moment we're sort of in where we have certainly during COVID there's been all those stories about uh, nature's being repaired and all these animals are, are taking over the streets and it's mm-hmm. all been a bit hyperbolic but we're having this moment where wild animals are being reintroduced or we're beginning to encroach even further on areas where these animals animals live and it's becoming more and more of an issue and I think. Yeah, no one wants to see and see anyone be hurt by them. But going back to that idea of, of sort of defending yourself, I had it in my mind as well. Like if I'm on land, like I've got a chance, right? So if you like shark attacks, for instance, <laughs> okay. if you get attacked by a shark, I kind of feel like, well, that's my fault. I went into their neighborhood and they 
took a bite out of me and that's my kind of my mm-hmm. fault nature is dangerous but like if i'm walking through the woods and i saw a bear or a wolf part of my brain thinks like all oh, right i've got a chance even if it's just to run away and you yeah. realize yeah you wouldn't stand a chance but i think wolves are quite the chances of actually seeing a wolf are really really small even a, like a lone wolf or a pack of wolves is really small they're not going out of their way to hang mm. out around humans there is a great video of a man in canada where he like it's filmed that he sat down on the ground i think he might be injured and a wolf is like pulling on his boots and it looks like it's about to like start chowing down on him and he's like go away wolf go away oh you're beautiful <laughs> <laughs> it's a really it's, he's right it's, it's a stunning animal yeah. and i think that hopefully that would kick in uh, whilst you're being attacked like, oh at least at least it's gorgeous wolves are one thing grizzly bears are another perhaps but the idea certainly when i went to the u.s and i was on the east coast i had this sort of romantic idea about bears and it's not until you get to the u.s that you realize the reality of it so i think it was in vermont or something like that and we got into this motel and we were saying oh i said oh we're gonna go for a walk and the the woman in the hotel was like go this way that way don't go there though you might come across some bears and i was like oh but i want to see a bear and she's like no you don't and i say like, why not and she's like because you don't really do not want to see a bear and i say oh right that's kind of worrying and then you you come across things like if you stay in woodland areas in the u.s that have these big containers where you put your rubbish and they have such big Mm. containers because they're bear bins right yeah you can't you got to stop any bears from from going through sort of food and rubbish or being attracted to an area and go to a walmart and you go to the the section where the hunting section and they have like bear bombs and devices that they've created in order to scare bears and wild animals off and you realize it isn't it isn't as funny when you're you're looking at something going like oh i need like a, a can of bear mace or you've got to have like a bear horn or something like that yeah we did a bear tour in tofino british columbia we were on on a boat going through all these like little fingerlet islands and a bear appeared out of the woods and walked up to sort of the edge of the water and started like turning over rocks to try and find some food and i mean the rocks at first were like i think i probably could have picked one up and then suddenly he walked over to one that was like the size of me with one flick of the wrist it was three meters further away and then it was just like Mm. click that is one of the strongest things i've ever seen in my life makes eddie hall look like an absolute weakling the reintroduction of native species sounds great on paper but even relatively mm-hmm. harmless animals such as the beaver have had uh, not the easiest of returns in germany and and i think the beaver was reintroduced in the 80s but this uh, again when i first came here there was a lot of you, you, you come across a lot of areas like parks where trees have been felled and there'd be signs saying like be careful around the trees the beavers are about and and it isn't just as easy as is all right we'll just bring them back and it'll be fine and i think i think yeah you've got to be you've got to be aware that that reintroducing wild animals has a knock-on effect it's a bit of a political football at the moment with especially with the green party and the ascendancy the green party is obviously for the reintroduction of wild animals and a lot of other parties are against it so this all does beg the question which wild animal would you least like to come across while taking a nice stroll through the woods okay i mean for honey badger oh yeah that's a good one that's a recipe for an absolute pant load of shit wolverines i mean it's it's pretty much a similar animal i guess i mean anything that doesn't have fear of 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 me would 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 perturb me Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, but I think honey badgers like universally like the toughest animal there is. It's either that or a komodo dragon. Komodo dragon, sure that, that's pretty terrifying. But I think in the heat of the moment, I could probably outrun a komodo dragon. They can move quite quickly, you know. They they can be quick, but I don't know about the turning. I think if you zig and zag, climbing trees, I guess is probably an issue for komodo mm. dragons as well. And mm-hmm. aren't they also only on one island? Yeah, yeah, thankfully. Yeah. <laughs> thankfully. <laughs> Just avoid that one you're island. You're not knocking about Bavaria and you come across a Komodo dragon, you've done something seriously wrong. <laughs> something really, like you're really having a bad day because there's no way that, that that's a normal, natural occurrence. It's a very black market animal <laughs> shop. <laughs> In a parallel universe, there is a version of me that is currently sitting somewhere wondering what it would have been like to live in Germany. Although I cannot definitively say where exactly the alternate me is, I know for certain that he is eating a pork pie the size of a cricket ball. (laughs) Alternate me never moved, and because he didn't, he is still infatuated with pork pies. They are my, or his, kryptonite. I know this because every time I go back, I gain at least 10 kilos, simply because I cannot stop eating them. That is not an exaggeration, by the way. I eat them like someone might take them away at any time. I remember fondly... 
a few years ago boarding a plane to return to Germany while brushing off pie crumbs from my t-shirt after I demolished two more pork pies as I left the house. Only days before that I had finished a packet of six mini pork pies in a car journey that only took an hour. I didn't even feel full afterwards. <laughs> I was like, I can have another packet. Perhaps alternate me will go into rehab at some point and solve his issue with those delicious meaty bastards. But he probably wouldn't. I wouldn't. So, Simon, how do you feel about pork pies? I like them, but what I've gleaned from this is that I do not like them compared to you. Yeah, I mean, pork pies are a very, very traditional British thing. I think, first of all, we need to explain what a pork pie is. Oh, yeah, because there's, like, American pies, right? And there's British Exactly. Pies, pie yeah. is a bit of a weird term. Because, as I said, the Americans, when they hear pie, they think, like, sweet apple pie, cherry pie, things mm. like that. And in Germany, the word pie isn't really used, and pies don't really exist in the same way as they do in the UK. So, I mean, yeah, what is a pork pie? What do you need for it to be a good pork pie is probably a better question. Well, I think your standard pork pie is a, a solid Melton Mowbray pork pie. Okay. That's the name that you've got to think about. So you're looking for that. And that is a protected... Like, yeah, like champagne. From, exactly. It's, it's like champagne. Yeah. <laughs> it's the champagne of pork pies. So what you got with a pork pie, you can have it warm, but most people would have it cold. It is mm-hmm. a sort of lunchtimey snack, I think. It's something you definitely see at a buffet for like a party in the UK. You definitely see it at a, a picnic in the UK. Mm-hmm. A meat pie is like pastry casing pastry top it's a sh- uh, short crust short yeah. crust pastry yeah so that means it's it's just flour water and and a bit of butter obviously different consistencies for different ones but it's not a thick pastry but it's thickish which is a very british way of describing it it's it's in between thick and thin <laughs> if you knock on it it should sound like mm. you're knocking on a bit of ikea furniture it should be stable like it should be very stable mm. and it should have a bit of a crunch to it when you bite into it so mm. good like a soggy pork pie is quite a depressing experience experience and then you've got various fillings uh, my personal preference is cheese and pickle and pork pie which is okay. pretty impressive if you just buy a standard pork pie and a block of cheese and some pickle then you can have like a, a cut price version of that but i generally go for the pre-made ones it's one of the more delicious things you find in britain and it's surprising you don't find it in germany so i mean there are sorts of things that are sort of halfway between like you have the german pressach mm. um which is like jelly with like quite high quality bits of pork like salsa yeah i mean a normal pork pie in the uk will be like the off cuts of pork so it's not necessarily always the highest quality melton mowbray is but it's designed for like yeah all the trimmings and stuff to be used up it's not for everyone the next question really is jelly or no jelly oh no jelly like uh, like when you talk about yeah no jelly man it's disgusting when you see it it's one of the grimmest looking things (laughs) and yeah i prefer like a minimum amount of jelly if there's going to be any but because the way they make them is you make the pork pie you make the crust you put the meat in it you put the lid on it and you put like a hole in the top and then the the idea is you put a funnel in and there's enough space in between the meat that you put in it Mm -hmm. to pour in pig fat solidifies into a jelly inside the pork pie that i appreciate listener sounds grotesque and that's why i would opt for jelly free (laughs) most mini pork pies are jelly free which is always a good thing most mini ones are that is true in my family it was every christmas my granddad would always bring a way too big turkey and a way too big pork pie from this one butcher's in his village and we had that every christmas Mm -hmm. as long as he was alive and that was jelly heavy and in my family that was the bit that we fought over like who got the best chunk of jelly jelliest bit we're heathens apparently i mean for me i definitely love pork pies and it was something that when i took uh, my wife with me to to the uk for the first time uh, we went to iron bridge gorge iron bridge gorge is the home of the very first iron bridge in the world hence the name thanks to thomas telford and on one side of the bridge there was a very traditional english bakers and they had pork pies available so i was like oh my god i need pork pie bought one ate half of it in like a few seconds and my wife sat there like what is this animal picking (laughs) yeah she wasn't a fan do have to be raised on these things uh so i'm not expecting our german listeners to suddenly become melton mowbray pork pie addicts like yourself but it's weird that it, it hasn't occurred here thankfully for my cholesterol levels i live in a country devoid of british style pastry covered pork products Mm, sad sure enough there are many delicious pork dishes here but none that can replace my temporary pie friends i'm also beholden to a wife who demands that i live as long as her if only so that she has someone around to reach the stuff on high shelves or to shoo 
away random spiders well into our dotage. I fear the day someone realises how lucrative it might be to sell British pork pies to German consumers. Not because I would end up buying any, not because I would end up buying any, but from the horrifically bruised hands I will have caused by my wife slapping packets <laughs> out of them every time we go shopping. I, mean, I, I see a, a secondary thing we can move into. So decades from home dating agency and pie shop. <laughs> Come for the uh, pies, leave with a date. <laughs> oh, got a slogan right there, hot off the press. Yeah, that might be a that might be a thought. I mean, the the dating agency seem to go down well with listeners. So I mean, if we can make eight <laughs> grand on dating, we don't need to make much on the pies. <laughs> As a, as a loss leader. <laughs> yeah, it's a loss leader. That's what we're going for. Yeah, so I, I mean, the discussion among people who've moved to Germany or moved to any country is, is a lot about the food that they miss. And we've talked a bit about that. But I was thinking about foods that we could import from the UK. A tricky number, mm. I think we'd both agree, given the uh, the state of Brexit at this point. But you've compiled a list of the top food and drinks that British immigrants miss uh, when they've moved to Germany or other countries. So do you want to lay it on me? What's this exciting list that you've compiled? Yeah, so this... This list actually came from the website vivamanchester.co.uk. It's not a site I've used often, but I'm going to give them a shout out anyway because they have done the legwork on this. Yeah, too right. Viva Manchester. I like it. <laughs> so the first thing that comes top of the list is tea. Uh, we've spoken about tea before with a lot yeah. of love and affection uh, and dedication. <laughs> so much so that people are like calling us out for our incessant conversation. It has been tea. mentioned in feedback that we do get a bit carried away on the tea. Uh, and that's fair enough. So very quickly, I thought it'd be interesting to talk about the brands uh, that mm. we love. Uh, so Nick, tea brand of choice would be it's always yorkshire tea dude Good lad, yorkshire that's... or rington's but no, you... just just yorkshire yorkshire okay, is the sorry. correct answer anything else is wrong <laughs> you have to buy the yorkshire tea online whereas you can buy pg tips but pg tips in germany i mean it's fine a lot of polish stores have it and you'll often find it in the international food aisle which is Asia basically shops the... as well pretty much always have pg available yeah but the tea doesn't diffuse properly because the yorkshire tea handles the water in germany a lot better than pg tips if you want a good pg tips you've got to wait i think an extra you like your tea two minutes right so you probably uh, have... three three minutes three so you probably right. have to double that it'd be six minutes in order mm-hmm. to get a decent cup of tea out of a, a PG Tips tea bag, and pro it's tip baby, cold at that point. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, this is this is a very valid thing, and I think only really British tea drinkers talk about like water hardness. Yeah, yeah. And buying the the right tea bag because you've got to understand they have options depending on mm. how much calcium is in your water. And Germany's very calcium heavy on water, so yeah, Yorkshire does cut through that to, to best effect. Uh, we'll, we'll do a, a special episode on tea at some point. It's going to have to happen. Uh, but moving swiftly on to chocolate, uh, what would be your, your brand of choice or your chocolate bar of choice? I can't think of chocolate that you can't get here that you can only get in the UK, except maybe I was thinking about Rolos the other day. You can buy Rolos here for sure. Can I mean, you? They're part of, they're part of Nestle. Uh, so yeah. they're available worldwide. I can't say that um, I've ever seen seen any like in the last few years, but again, I haven't probably haven't been looking for them. Bringing chocolate to Germany is a bit like calls to Newcastle, right? It, they've got enough chocolate here. But but you got anything specific that you'd call out? Yeah, totally. Like a double decker uh, from Cadbury's. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. That's that's a pretty special chocolate bar that there is no alternate to it. Uh, whenever I see one in the UK, I will grab it. It's like a, a biscuit base with like a nougat top and crunchy bits. It's it's very very good. So thick. Um, it's so thick. But I think with chocolate, <laughs> it's, it's about where you come from uh, is normally your right. favourite. So, I mean, there is a wealth of excellent chocolate here in Germany. There's no question about that. But Cadbury's Dairy Milk is for me my favourite chocolate. It makes me feel at home. I, t- I tell you what, I would be remiss, and I'm sure the, our Scottish listeners would call me out if I didn't say Tonics Tea Cakes. Or Those Tonics are available Wafers. in Germany now. What? Uh, Where? Ed- Edeka has started really? holding. Yeah, every now and again, the Tonics Caramel Bars are available as well. Right, uh, I'm leaving. I'm just going to go now. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> yeah, someone posted it on Twitter, and it was the first time where I was like, thank you, Twitter. <laughs> You've actually delivered <laughs> something I wanted to see. <laughs> Yeah, I did. Twitter, finally, you're not a bunch of racist, insane people. <laughs> now you're giving me Tonics tea cake recommendations. Yeah, I'm going to so check yeah, that out. It's definitely worth checking out. Anyone that hasn't had a Tonics before, if you see them in your Edica, uh, oh, yeah, get them. They're, they're wonderful. But leave some for me. <laughs> yeah, we will be running a Tonics tea cake drive. Uh, <laughs> rest coming at the end of the episode. Just for me. Just pour, pour them into my mouth. <laughs> to feed our hungry northerner. <laughs> Uh, the number three thing we have on the list is Marmite. Oh, you definitely not get... You get Vegemite, I think, you can get here, but I've not seen Marmite. Yeah, I don't know. I I mean, the, the slogan is you either love it or you hate it, and I firmly hate it, so I have no desire. Um, 
Do you like marmite? I mean, yeah, I do. Like, it's vegetable extract. Or is it yeast extract? Yeast That's extract, what it is. yeah. And Vegemite's vegetable extract. Exactly, but it's, yeah, yeah it's, it's a very particular taste. I mean, it's given rise to the term, like, this. it's a marmite, very polarizing, yeah. like, flavor. I mean, it's, it's a weird thing because there really? is a marmite shortage apparently experiencing now. Uh, there is a marmite shortage being experienced now or coming in the future because the mm. amount of beer that's being brewed in the UK is down because of COVID. And that's right. where Marmite comes from. It's part of the brewing process. Gravy is next. Uh, you get gravy here, don't you? Bratton saucer. It's not the same, mate. <laughs> I don't know there's much difference. But yeah, saucer is the indeed the German word for what is gravy. Um, but normally the saucer you get here is quite thin in comparison. Uh, whereas if you think of a, a real good homemade gravy, it'll be yeah. quite thick. Uh, and Bisto, which I guess is the number one brand uh, sold mm. globally, uh, you can control how thick it is by putting in extra granules because it's just mm. granulated, rehydrated. Um, but I like my gravy thick, so I'm always left a little bit disappointed by the thinness of a journey. Uh, I see the trick is to take control of the the process. I, I rarely order things with Bratton sauce. I rarely, if I go out for dinner, I don't really order Bratton at all, to be perfectly honest. So it's not something that I have to particularly complain about but if i'm making gravy at home mate like it's being made properly i'm just using bratton mm-hmm. sauce but i'm also using like if you do it right and you're doing a, a roast dinner then you've already roasted some vegetables with the meat that you've decided to make and then you turn that into a gravy and boy oh boy is that the the, the elixir of life yeah, i should have eaten before we did this i'm starving <laughs> <laughs> yeah just wait we're, we're only at five <laughs> number five is biscuits oh shit <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I think the German biscuit options are superior. When I go in the the, the sweet aisle, the biscuit options are, are pretty solid. I'm not really asked about digestive biscuits or, or maybe like a custard cream, but I can get custard creams here. That's not a problem. I I, I have to agree with you. There's one thing that, that isn't replicated very well here, and that's a chocolate hobnob. Yeah, you don't get a hobnobs which is a lot, yeah. the king of biscuits. Mm-hmm. Of course, connected to tea, a very common thing for British people to do is to dunk their biscuit in yeah. their tea and the hobnob is the only biscuit that will drink your tea for you because it's so fucking it's like a hard sponge. doesn't bend it doesn't nope. flake it's robust um it's salty and sweet and chocolatey all at the same time it's full of oats and mm. you a- should see the look of disgust that my wife and my brother-in-law give me when i dunk biscuits in, in coffee or tea the look on their faces is just absolute astonishment that that is something that you would do and i don't know if that's typical for the whole of germany but i've had reactions from people when they've seen me do it and they've just been like what are you doing i remember one time someone said you can't do that and i was like just fucking watch me like there's one thing that's going to make a british person do something more it's if you tell them they can't do it that's that's the truth of it so yeah yeah, yeah. i can live without whatever the britain's offering really. yeah you mentioned custard creams and this is something that's sort of quite traumatic for me because at boarding school we got like an allowance of biscuits get like a roll and that was your like your supply for the next day or two i can't remember how often we got them but of course that it was like charity my school and so they were like the cheapest ones possible did it become like a a illicit currency within the school like cigarettes cigarettes in prison totally totally because like the bourbons (laughs) were number one custard creams number two and then you had like rich tea were at the bottom nobody wanted rich tea it's a lot like prison boarding school in that sense like economies of trade and supply and demand it's all very much the same yeah okay so what we on now number six crisps is number six so, what's the best brand of crisps in the UK? I don't, I don't eat crisps. Um, amazingly, I'm just not. I, Monster Munch, I guess, would be all right okay. to have. But I used to be a big crisp guy, and then I had really high blood pressure, so it's like one of the things I've cut out of my diet because yeah, obviously, there's quite a bit of salt involved. I mean, I like Walkers, she's Lay's uh, in the US, mm-hmm. and we see Lay's here as well in Germany, so they are yeah. available in the UK. It is a big culture, crisp flavors. And it's even gone so far that companies like Walkers have had like initiatives from the public where you could suggest like what flavor crisps. So there was, I think it was 2000, uh, they did a campaign and it resulted in the all day breakfast being made into a crisp yeah. flavor, uh, chicken tikka masala, fish and mm-hmm. chips, like all these iconic. Didn't have like things. a squirrel flavor. There was or a like squirrel that. flavor, yes. Yeah. <laughs> very odd because they do that periodically don't they, they? Do. they just like introduce five flavors and by how many they've sold after a three-month period that becomes the exactly the, the new flavor but i mean for me a classic cheese and onion is is probably 
my number one. It's the one I enjoy the most. Uh, next we have beans, and here it just means baked beans. Go back in the born, and, and I guess there is only really one company that does this at the, at the proper level, and that's Heinz. You can get Heinz beans here. I've never had a problem mm-hmm. finding beans. As you say, available here at most supermarkets, but it's about one pound fifty. Uh, one sorry, one euro fifty. Uh, I'll switch to to sterling for a second there. Um, <laughs> so it is quite expensive. Uh, and yeah. again, it's I'm traumatized by them. I had them three meals a day until I was 18, mm. so I don't eat baked beans very often. But yeah, next up, bacon. We love bacon. Listeners know that. We love bacon. I, think, I don't think we need no, to go. We spent like, I think, an hour talking about bacon a few weeks ago. So yeah. So next is pies. And we've mentioned pork pies. And of course, one of the pies that is accessible to anyone in the world is the Frey Bentos. Oof. Pie in a tin. <laughs> it is a pie in a tin. Like, that's wild, that stuff. I mean, it, it's, yeah. yeah. If you've never seen one, it's a circular tin, and then you put it in the oven, I guess, and you've got a pie it's a pie i think you take the lid off first um, i can't say so i've ever it, had one so i had definitely i have had definitely had these pies uh when i was uh boarding school slash prison <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, that's definitely it's it's very low quality food mm. uh, but it's definitely a cultural thing in the uk i mean I, obviously where nick's from in the north of england it's more of a cultural thing going to the football traditionally would involve a pie at half time um mm. when i went to watch the rugby down south it was more like paninis uh, than pies mm. but yeah a good pie very mm. hard to get here yeah i mean when i've been to watch uh, newcastle united play nowadays it's a lot mm. of like burgers and hot dogs and crap like that don't get so many pies in a pint when i went to watch the newcastle falcons play it's very much mm-hmm. the other side of the tracks and it was like would you like some uh, asparagus uh, with that or would you well, we've got some guacamole on the wraps, side yeah. that's just like yeah just get out of here this is ridiculous <laughs> <laughs> number 10 we have cereal i mean yeah kellogg's is i guess the number one brand weetabix you can't weetabix here though don't you yeah you can you i did see someone and... posted that they were having trouble finding them in berlin so i don't know if there's a struggle in the capital a rush mm. of all the expats buying their their weetabix for brexit i'll be frank i think i miss american cereal over any other cereal because like captain crunch or fruity pebbles stuff like that like oh, that like i love a really sickly sweet cereal <laughs> but in germany like i can't argue with german cereal standards when they have lion bar cereal like you've you've, <laughs> That's true, you, you've completed that. cereal in my mind once you've got to that level like let's take a lion bar which is a good chocolate bar and stick it in a cereal and have it for breakfast. I'm like, yeah, give give me, give me the citizenship now, please. But I think also there's a different culture of cereal here. Cereal is expensive mm. here as well. It's, it's very, very expensive to buy Kellogg's and the like. And if you go to the cereal section of any supermarket, you're going to be overwhelmed by the amount of muesli available next to it. So much muesli. I mean, it's, it's a, an incredible selection uh, of mueslis, and it's probably nice. It's certainly healthier for you and more balanced, so I guess that's why the majority of Germans and, and a lot of Northern Europeans have made the switch i see a lot of oats like half a flock and being sold and i can't i, I gotta wonder i just assume everyone's making really bad porridge uh, that's just my assumption um, i mean my, my wife we've always got half a flock in the home i've never eaten any and there's always <laughs> a couple of bags being bought every now and again it's, yeah i go i buy it. i buy like a probably a bag every two months because every so often i'll just make porridge and when i make porridge it's like all of it all of the porridge <laughs> like, i'm gonna have my two months worth of porridge in this one so like, i'm a, a demon when it comes to porridge making so uh, number 11 we have pickle i'm gonna have a moment and just think about pickle while you just vamp just vamp while i'm while i'm looking off I mean, into the distance thinking about branson's i was pickle. kind of hoping i'd be able to do that at this point because yeah i get i too get quite emotional yeah. about pickle like my voice even broke a little bit saying that for me i mean branston is the number one brand their pickle is is mm. phenomenal but yeah there are lots and lots of companies that do it and it's one of these things that a lot of people make yeah. at home as well pickle is a really easy preservative mm. to make and yeah chuck it on cheese chuck it on ham chuck it in a sandwich it's just a sandwich spread right it's yeah. a in a pork pie it's so like literal isn't it it's just like pickled vegetables essentially in yeah. a in a i don't know what the, the sauce is it's like a it's, is it sugar um, vinegar and yeah I yeah that, that's the, the two main ingredients and like there's nothing nothing simpler and nothing nicer than the cheese and pickle I, it gives a complex flavor again the mouthfeel is really good you get crunchiness yeah yeah oh. a bit crunchy yeah exactly yeah and you get different varieties you get like thick thick cut you get thin cut yeah. oh man 
yeah just take yeah, a moment this is really I'm, I, I am missing the UK suddenly <laughs> 12 sausages uh, obviously like yeah. I'm not no, no like so we've got all the sausages we need here like okay you've got apple and cinnamon sausages or some shit but that's like, one thing we do do a lot of in the UK any supermarket you can buy like fancy flavours of sausages but I mean yeah the mm. general like Wool's sausage which I guess has to be the number one most sold brand in UK history is just <laughs> awful and wouldn't be recognised as a sausage here it's like I like sausage that they're so bad that they can't legally call them sausages and have to call them bangers Indeed. and then like and they're usually the things you get in a all-day breakfast or like a in a hotel or something and you, i just feel for germans going to britain and having like a business meeting on a stomach of walls bangers or something like that that are just you can you can hear the disappointment from here <laughs> 13 is crumpets all oh, right yeah you're definitely not getting crumpets here you have to make them yourself really Indeed, make them yourself yeah Easy enough done. So yeah, crumpet is, uh, yeah, it's like it's, a, it's an airy dough, basically. It's an airy it's dough. Like it's, it's a circular, quite. It's got like um, lots of air pockets in it, and you bang yeah. it in the toaster. It's quite stodgy. It's quite thick, and you bang it in the toaster, and it is one of again one of the more sort of epic bits of food that you you get in the UK. That if you if you're in the UK and you've never had a crumpet, rectify that now. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> for us loads at least. of butter it should be yeah. the butter should be pissing through it in an ideal world. <laughs> you're so descriptive why why aren't you getting more jobs describing food <laughs> uh 14 is squash you get that here though right like you can but it's not the same no? if you're middle class or above in the uk then you would have been raised on ribena uh, or robertson's mm-hmm. uh, and these are two sort of very very successful very traditional companies uh, with very high quality products, I think. Um, but you can, of course, get cheap squash. Uh, so like a syrup uh, is what it's called here, where you just add to your water mm. to get flavor. Uh, Soda Stream have brought this back to a certain mm. degree. So now I have a sugar-free orange Ooh, nice. uh, syrup that I add to my Soda Stream, just like Fanta. It's mm. very, very good. I think because there was four of us, we ended up just by necessity getting own brand and it was never i never had a real desire for it it wasn't high on my list of beverage choices but and again i don't really drink it now so Mm. (laughs) again not not missing it too much yeah 15 we have cheese i'm gonna say something controversial um german cheese is fucking awful (laughs) i have a real issue with it it all tastes the same i'm sorry like i don't care like you got birdkaiser birdkaiser tastes different and it's good and then you've just got a series of samey cheeses from from germany or from the netherlands like most of the time gouda edam emmentaler they're the same cheese with different names that's all i don't i don't care what you tell you can tell me as much as you want that it's nutty or what like it's oh it's mature yeah it's mature it's been sat in a box for a week well done Honestly, like a bit of French cheese, amazing. <laughs> Obatsta's very good. I do like that. But again, it's that's very particular to, to, to Bavaria. And you've got Frisch Käse. That's pretty nice where it's sort of mixed with something that's generally good. But but your general sort of packets of cheese are just a fine selection of disappointment in my mind. Anyway, <laughs> ran over. Okay, so complaints can be sent to uh, 40% German. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I do have to agree with Nick to a certain degree. If you buy, uh, you can buy sliced selections uh, where you have apparently all these different cheeses and they do have slightly different feel uh, and they look slightly different, mm. but the taste is, is very much the same. I am a, a massive fan of a mature cheddar uh, and will die on that mm. hill that it is the most versatile uh, cheese that there is. Um, but yeah, mm. when we look at France, is is just they are masters of cheese, and I'd rather have a selection of French cheeses than anything German in my fridge. Oh dear, Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> let's move on. <laughs> How did David Hasselhoff save Germany? Now this is one of my favourite. <laughs> favorite stories about germany but this idea that david hasselhoff was somehow responsible for the berlin wall coming down has i think been slightly embellished by hasselhoff's pr team but or even uh-huh. hasselhoff himself as you may or may not know the the fall of the berlin wall was kind of a bit of a mix-up on november 9th 1989 notice about the changes was handed to a spokesperson gunter shabowski who read these new rules to a press conference uh, the reporters were surprised and when asked about the changes to to the 
the crossing points at, over across the wall. They asked when these rules would come into effect. And Shabosky, not having any particular information on when this would come into effect, said the immortal lines ab so fort, which means immediately. And so it began a series of events that would eventually lead to the crossing points across the Berlin Wall being opened and allowing East Berliners and West Berliners to finally uh, come together. Hasselhoff was, at this point, little known outside of America. He was known for, I believe, such TV shows as, as Knight Rider. And he came to Germany in December 31st, 1989. Uh, he was suspended from a crane above a crowd of one million adoring Germans and in a improbably battery-powered jacket, crooned to the crowd, I've been looking for freedom. I've been looking so long. I've been looking for freedom. Still the search goes on. Although Hoff was nowhere near the Berlin Wall coming down on November 9th, 1989, remember, he was. this is him in December. He did seem to appear and became sort of iconically linked with the, that period and that era of the wall coming down. Really, David Hasselhoff didn't save Germany, but he did He did a nice concert for them. That's what he did. And it is, it's a really iconic moment in the history of the Berlin Wall. And, I mean, I, I quite like the fact that he goes around the world kind of pretending that he's some unifying force. <laughs> I find that quite charming. <laughs> Hello to Zaman. That brings us to the end of the show. Thanks for listening and thanks to all of you for bearing with us as I move house, etc. My aching muscles give you their thanks. A thank you to everyone who's been retweeting the show. Don't forget to give us a rating if you're using the Apple Podcast app or any other app for that matter. Thanks again to all of you for the support and for spreading the word of the podcast. Always appreciated. If you'd like to share the show, don't forget to tag us by using the hashtag decades from home all lowercase as ever if you have any questions feedback or maybe an article or topic you'd like us to cover you can tweet simon on at decades from home and you can tweet me at 40 percent german you can also get us on 40 percent german at gmail.com if you have time take a look at 40 percent german.com weekly articles are up every saturday all that's left to say is thanks and bis zum nächsten mal tschüss from home. Simon and I can't come to the phone right now, but please leave a message after the beep. This is Bobby Template of the law firm Template Template Vase, acting on behalf of Mr. David Hasselhoff, a.k.a. The Night Rider, a.k.a. Mitch, a.k.a. The Half. We listened with interest to your recent podcast and would warn you that besmirching the good name of Mr. Hasselhoff by suggesting he has anything other than an instrumental part in ending the decades-long division of East and West Germany and, moreover, ending the protracted conflict known as the Cold War could lead to litigation. We request you cease and desist your defamatory statements and stick to talking about bacon, a German TV, or whatever else you limey assholes talk about. We would also request Mr. Maddox return the freedom he borrowed from Mr. Hasselhoff last year. It took our client many years to look for all that freedom, and he isn't in the business of just giving it out for free. You've been warned.